Hi, I'm Lindsay Tauber of Help Around, and I'm happy to welcome you to a specialty patient podcast with your host, Ishai Knobel. Each episode is crafted to bring you new insights into the specialty drug ecosystem. Our guests share Help Around's passion for improving the patient experience and making specialty patients' lives easier. I hope you enjoy listening to this session. Great to be here today. We are, this is the first podcast of, uh, of Help Around on the specialty patient journey. And uh, super excited to start this, um, this series of very short podcasts, uh, 15 minutes, uh, maybe 20 each, uh, to bring you uh, pharma, uh, pharma professionals, brand managers, patient services, uh, anyone thinking about the patient journey uh, when it comes to this new category of, uh, of specialty medicines and specialty drugs, um, bringing you some of the ideas that are going on out there and some best practices when it comes to working uh, in health tech and working with innovative companies. Uh, and I, my name is Ishai, Ishai Knobel. I'm the co-founder and CEO of HelpAround. Uh, and due to these crazy times, we are uh, holding this uh, each one, this uh, podcast recording today from uh, our virtual studio, which is at home. So we might have, you know, some four or five years old, year old barging in, uh, yelling something about uh, about their Halloween costume. But this is part of the fun. But today, uh, I wanna I wanna introduce uh, a great a great person that honestly any health tech entrepreneur in this space should know, um, Amea Fatke. And Amea uh, works in corporate development at Kiesi Pharmaceuticals. And Amea has brought multiple partnerships to life with uh, innovative health tech companies. And I'm really excited to have him as our first guest on this series. Uh, Amea, welcome. Well, I'm really, really excited to be here. Uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of seeing this space evolve for several years and just really excited to, uh, to talk about this. Uh, just one quick, you know, I think one quick, uh, one quick disclosure, you know, things that I'll talk about, those are really my own opinions um, and, you know, don't necessarily represent those of the company that I work for. Um, that said, you know, I think it'll be, it'll be a really fun time and that allows me to be a little bit, little bit more open. But, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm here speaking only on behalf of myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of my, my employer or anything like that. But with that out of the way, we can actually get to the fun stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so, Amea, let's, let's talk. Let's talk partnerships. Uh, you you have put together quite a few partnerships, uh, both as an investor as well as uh, as a partner with some pretty innovative companies. Uh, I can recall one of the most recent uh, partnerships that you um, that that you wrote about was with uh, a startup health company, uh, a company called Cyclica, uh, and uh, you wrote a great blog post that I. Highly recommend about investing during COVID and how partnership really came out of of a very authentic relationship and an attempt uh, to help. So I think what I would love to hear from you is at the high level, what is your philosophy on on pharmaceutical companies partnering with innovative health tech companies? What's the right way to approach this, and what are some of the common mistakes you see out there? So. You know, rather than say pointing fingers at specific practices, I think it would be helpful to talk maybe about what I believe is a helpful mindset 
the pharma companies can take on when they when they speak to these companies. You know, far too often we typically have large, and this isn't just pharma companies. You know, this pharma, large payer, like large enterprises in general. Uh, there tends to be this sort of implied pedestal that the large company is on relative to the health tech company, and so a lot of the a lot of the conversations are around the health tech company pitching to the large company, and that's you know that's sort of the name of the game. One of the things to, from my perspective, I think the most successful partnerships have really been when the large company has this desire to prove itself to the smaller company, right? So the partnership is not necessarily framed as a smaller, a large company helping a small company gain some revenue or gain share or bring their product to the, to, to the market. I actually look at it on its head, right? As a pharma company, when you work with the health tech, that health tech company is helping you evolve your business model. And so the burden is on you to be successful, right? That company could have worked with anybody, but they chose to work with you. And now I know that's, you know, I think in areas where that dynamic and almost that hunger and humility is, is there up front, those are ones where I think it really makes for a, a healthy and respectful relationship, right? Like almost like a, it's a, it's a meeting of two equals as opposed to um, one party sort of being superior and the other party sort of being, being inferior, if that makes sense. So it sounds very simplistic and very philosophical. But just that one one thing, in my view, has been one of the things where I've seen not just partnerships that I may have done or been involved in, both on the tech side, both when I was on the startup side, as well as when I'm on the pharma side. But also, if you look at some of the others in the industry that are really, really interesting, it's really where, you know, and granted, I wasn't in the room, but where you could really see almost they're treating each other as as equals. So can you give an example of uh, what that whole piece looks like? Because at the end of the day, usually yeah. the innovator is smaller, is less funded, uh, time urgency is higher. Uh, and, and you know, for very often, if you're dealing with a startup, that could be the make or break of the company. Yeah. Uh, whereas on the pharma side, okay, it's, you know, one of five, six, seven initiatives but that the brand team is pursuing I'm gonna stop, at the I'm going to stop you there for a second, because I think... Um, so from my perspective, as a pharma company, you ideally want to do partnerships that really allow you to, to punch above your weight class, right? So I think when you, when you enter a partnership, I look at it and say, you know, you want to enter partnerships where if you, if you execute on this, you're a hero, right? Not just for your company, but for your space, massive reward on the back end. And on the flip side, entering partnerships where if it doesn't work out, there's actually going to be some pain on your side. And I know that you know the industry gets a knack for being risk averse, but I've found the arrangements where um, it, there actually is that incentive to succeed because you know failure is—I wouldn't say failure is not an option, but where there's a significant downside to failure, those are things that I think really help. And I, you know, from from the entrepreneur side, when you're working with a company, sometimes it's a better idea maybe to work with a company that may not be as large as some of the others out there, but is one that's really willing to put real skin, real skin in the game, whether that skin is, is money on the table, whether that's the resource commitment, whether that's a penalty, if they don't fulfill their obligations, whatever that is. Um, and so I, I actually see it as that perspective, right? Like you really want to, so when you're looking at potential partnerships or companies to partner with large companies, if I'm in the entrepreneur's shoes, I want to partner with the company where 
my product is foundational, right? And if I fail, there's a lot of pain on their side, even if that may not be the highest revenue account, because especially in the early stage of a company, I would argue that the right partner can 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 make or break a company. Um, and you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a massively scaling account, but if you get someone that's really vested in your success, that's almost certainly going to be more valuable than someone that may be willing to throw some like innovation fund money at you or something like that. Okay, so you're so you're talking about really setting up the incentives both sides yeah. to make sure that everybody has some skin in the game. Right? Exactly. So, so, so both splitting the splitting the risk, but then also splitting splitting the rewards, right? So if you look at a lot of the models, so it's one of the reasons I actually don't like subs classic subscription models at all for, for things like this. I think subscription models are fine for like vendor supply relationships where the product is relatively simple. It fits into a fairly well-defined use case. But if there's going to be a lot of work, for example, if, you're, if your larger partner needs to do a lot of work, then you'll, you, you, want to, you want to split the risk and the rewards so that, again, they have... And, they have the incentive to help you out, but at the same time, if they don't, if things don't work out, then there's there's going to be pain on on both sides. And 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 what have you seen? You know, that's a pretty you know innovative approach, I would say, to uh, bringing in to bringing in outside vendors. Uh, very often, maybe the pharma comp maybe for vendors, but I was I mean maybe it's because I live in the business development world. I mean that's something that we do all the time, right? When you do a transaction with a company there's typically a splitting of, of risk and reward. And so that's something that companies are, pharma, pharma, if there's one thing they do phenomenally well, it's, it's corporate development, right? And so my view is when you enter these kinds of partnerships, even if the use case itself may be sort of a vendor supplier, thinking around the transaction the way a business development person would actually really helps, right? Thinking around what the use case is, how that boils down to the business case, how you can split the risk, how you can split the reward, um, and doing that, and because the other thing that that's also going to push, you know, when I see partnerships not work out, for the most part, it's because there isn't a clear definition of where one party's obligations end and where the other party's begins, right? So exactly who's responsible for what, and actually carving out really, really, really clear lines of where one where one party sort of has, calls the shots and the other part, and where the other party calls the shots. So as when you think of this risk and reward, that, you know, doing that, that exercise will also help you understand exactly who, you know, who does what. You know, without sort of naming specific companies, you know, one model that I've really, really complimentary about is if you look at a lot of the, um, the digital therapeutics deals that some of the players from Japan have entered into, um, really, really well-defined, right? Extremely well-defined. What countries? Who does what? Who's handling what? What the payouts are? And so in my view, that's really a good way to look at things. And you know, the reason I'm not naming one specific company, because you know, there's a few, you know, some of the, several of the pharma companies from Japan have entered into these partnerships. And at least, in, you know, who knows if it'll actually work out. But in my view, they've thought through things um, in, a, in a pretty nice way. Um, candidly, so, far better than what some other players in the industry have. So how, why do you think that's the case? Why do you think, uh, what, what are they doing in the way they, in the, in, in the way they approach these partnerships, uh, these Japanese companies, how is that really different uh, from yeah. the way American companies approach it? I don't think it's an American versus a Japanese thing. I think they just, you know, their companies happen to be Japanese. I will say, I think one of the, one of the challenges is, 
you know, there's a lot of this desire um, to show that you're innovative, right? Um, and it's more so amongst larger players than say the, the mid-level or the smaller players. And maybe, so I would say it's probably more a function of size than it is of geography. But, you know, I think the larger companies are really, are a lot more exploratory and, you know, more credit for them, more credit to them for doing that. Um, the mid-sized and smaller companies tend to approach these partnerships as more traditional in-licensing partnerships, right? The, the same kind of thinking that they would give if they're in-licensing a classic therapeutic. And so the, their core businesses tend to be a lot more involved in, in that as opposed to sort of the innovation team or the innovation group or what have you. And so having that means that the people that are on the hook to commercialize this are involved in the very beginning. And so that really helps craft a partnership that is not going to be something that you, you don't have to sell it to the core business because the core business is already sold on it, if that makes sense. That's a really great point. So, so you know, when you think about the different stakeholders uh, related to a certain uh, pharma business unit, uh, usually, you know, it's around the drug or it's around yeah. a certain therapy. Uh, and then you have a few stakeholders there. You have, you know, the brand team, you have uh, BizDev, uh, you have uh, patient services, yep. and each company has a different dynamic. Uh, you know, and some companies acting right, and some the budgets are market budgets. access. Exactly. I mean, the I can't, there is a digital therapeutic CEO, and I, I wish I could remember who it was because um, this is like one of the one of the really really insightful things that I remember re hearing at um at a conference once, and he said, you know, one of the first questions that he asks when he sits down with a prospective pharma partner is, all right, if we do this, whose budget is paying for this, right? Not just is there budget. I mean, that's hopefully a, hopefully a foregone conclusion um, or that's hopefully a given, but whose budget actually tells you a lot, right? So it tells you what priority it is. It tells you how what the level that is signing off on this. It tells you, you know, what the scope is to broaden this. It tells you how deeply embedded the problem that you're solving is in, is in the in the in the company's business model and so that simple question actually is is massively revealing and if they fumble for that response that's probably not a great sign either right because that's sort of a well you know we'll figure out how to pay for this later um, but that's what i've found right i mean i think the partnerships that tend to be you know partnerships that may be less exploratory less bleeding edge but where the core business is really excited about them from the very beginning for, for an industry like pharma may be a little bit better to take on than say some of the more bleeding edge ones. That's, that's just my perspective, but it's something that I've seen not, you know, and this is sort of a companies, even when I was on the tech side, you know, companies, pharma companies that we worked with, the ones where, you know, they really looked at the product offering as embedded into their core competency that's really where things took off. And, you know, many of those projects started very small, but scaled really rapidly, right? As opposed to the others where they sort of stayed where they were and then just sort of died as innovation initiatives. So qualification, it's, it's, it's really key. So qualify and make sure that the core business is going to get an impact and has skin in the game uh, in this uh, yeah. potential in innovation and, and, and that uh, otherwise, otherwise it, it may just be a long route circle conversation that yeah. may not end up in anything. I mean, yeah, it, it, this is going to sound crazy, but from a philosophical perspective, I believe that anyone in an innovation type function or in a digital health type function, um, their ultimate goal should be their, you know, that those activities should be obsoleted by what they're working on. Right. So I know, I'll, like, for example, 
we don't talk about e-commerce anymore. It's just commerce, right? And so what I mean by that is if you brought in the right kinds of innovation, the day that innovation stops looking innovative, it's because it's become ingrained into into your actual into the actual processes at that company, which is really what you're shooting for, right? That's how you make maximum impact. Um, and so, you know, that that's really how you can keep yourself, uh, you know, on the bleeding edge. So instead of saying fixated on specific technologies like AI, quantum computing, blockchain, or whatever, I think focusing on how you can take things that are outside and, but actually, instead of bringing them in as innovation projects, figure out how to make them sort of more more sustainable, right? I mean, I believe this. So- I was yeah. going to say, I think this industry has way too many innovators and not enough executors. So let, let's talk about execution. Let's say that, uh, you know, you're in, um, let's say that, you know, you're going to eventually work yourself out of, a, out of a role. There will be no innovation world. You're just going to do corporate development, well, no innovation. Right, exactly, and, right? Exactly. And, and, and you're just going to be buying companies all day long, hopefully, and the, the, or investing. And, the, um, and let's say that, you know, this role of, it will be ingrained in a lot of companies and, and and you know there are some great companies out there that that don't have that you know extra layer because yeah. it's really already embedded and ingrained especially the smaller companies or the mid-sized companies as you mentioned yep. they don't you know they don't have an innovation department because innovation is just built into the core they have to right what i mean else? that's how that's how they compete with companies that are like 10 times their size exactly now the question is now let's think about it from both sides from the mid-sized company the team there is smaller so it's easier to kind of involve everyone but what are some of the best practices that you would suggest Uh, i mean a a big part of your role is to go and get buy-in within the organization so and there's legal there's compliance there's procurement there is brand there's patient services and it's not it's what are some of the best practices there Yeah. yeah so you talked about all the various functions and I'd also like to add, there's another sort of axis of complexity, which is at the country level, right? So far too often, we'll typically see a digital health strategy probably sold by, you know, very expensive, uh, by a very expensive team of either consultants or external experts, KOLs, what have you, um, that are kind of forced down the throats of the people at the working level, right? So people at the country level that are basically told, all right, this is what we're doing, make this work. And it's, it's got to be a little bit more interactive than that. I think, you know, you have to take the on-the-ground realities into account. You have to take the on, not just in terms of the external market, but also the specific dynamics of that country business unit. That's really how you're going to get them to be really organically excited about, about something and, and really take it on, right? Because otherwise, it's, you know, my role and the role of, I think, anyone who's trying to bring these kinds of technologies in is really about getting people excited and almost convincing them that it was their idea in the first place, um, which sounds exactly. which sounds which exactly. sounds silly, but it's got to be a lot more a lot more interactive. So I don't look at I don't look at it as oh I see something cool on the outside. Let me see who internally can can adopt this. Right. Ideally, there's this interactive conversation going on where once you you know you have a good sense of the needs both at the country level and then also at the function level, right? And this depends on whether are you looking for a vendor type solution or are you looking for something to commercialize? Um, but then when you see something out there that meets that, ideally the, the, the foundation's already been laid for you to, to, to bring that in. So the, you know, the, metric, the metric that I like to use is it's gotta be something that if you bring it in, someone all the way up to the GM level is gonna buy into. 
So, so you're telling you're putting a pretty high bar, uh, yeah. you know, on the on the uh, on whoever the champion is that really identified the opportunity uh, to tell them, hey, it's all your legwork right now to go and get buy-in, and not just get buy-in, but uh, get everybody excited about this. And this is this is beyond your day job. Well, it's, so it's funny you mention that. I actually don't see my role or people in roles like me as a, as a champion at all, right? At the end of the day, I got no budget, right? <laughs> my my job. People is, who are listening, Amea has no budget. Do not <laughs> do. Don't waste your time. <laughs> um, no, but it, you know, I think pragmatically, pragmatically speaking, right? I think what you have to do, and this is not specific to any of the companies here. Um, the role of people to bring in sort of external innovations, not just digital ones, right, is is to convince, or not even to convince, it's really to work with the people who are under the gun to actually do the commercial activities or to actually deliver value to the companies to make, to make it work. So it's almost like your goal is really being an advisor as opposed to being a champion. Um, and so your role should really be to help the external companies um, get favor with the people who actually have the ability to serve as those champions. And I think having a little bit of humility goes a long way in that, in that aspect. And this is in both directions. It's basically every conversation starts with how can I help you, whether you are right. inside the company or are you external company, like how can I help you? And then kind of see, well, if I help you, is that going to help somebody else? Tell me a little bit about communication and we're going to wrap up after that. But in terms of communication, kind of best practices, uh, who to engage earlier, who to engage later, how to set expectations. Uh, you know, t tell us a little bit about kind of your best practices from your point of view, the, the best mindset. There's a lot. I mean, so I'm going to focus specifically on people who are at the large company and whose, whose role it is to bring in, bring in external partners. I think, number one, you have to figure out, you know, is this, you know, what the need is, and then does this need map to something that your company would use for its own sort of internal activities, um, or would it is this something that your company may say commercialize, right, or deploy in a, in a commercial setting? Because the the, level, the kind of stakeholders that you bring in are are going to be completely different, right? So, for example, does this map to a specific pharma brand? At that point, you probably want to get the pharma franchise, the whatever the franchise or the brand is involved, right? It's I think. You really have to map out what this actually means. And more importantly, what's the metric by which this partnership would, de would deliver ROI, right? So would it actually bring in revenue? Is it going to save something, save expenses, make things, whatever, whatever it is, right? And this is, I mean, this isn't specific to, this isn't specific to say pharma and digital health, right? I mean, this is pretty classic B2B commercial, B2B sales, but it's really about mapping who is most impacted by this, and then do they care about about the kind of problem this is solving? So and and, and, and this yeah, and this is this is really a great point because you know uh, okay, in which it makes me wonder about articulating that ROI from all the companies you see, and you see a lot of companies. Uh, what makes the one that really stand out? What is that there? Is it that they're able to point a pain point or is it their approach? You wrote a little bit in the cyclical relationship yeah. that they really treated you as an kind of a advisor almost. But, yeah. you know, if you look at the broadly, what should someone who is going to the start the next Startup Health Festival, hopefully in person, should be, what's the filter that they should be looking for? I don't really know that there, 
it's going to be tough for me to say if there's a filter or not. I mean, I think the the most important things to to think about are really just, um, you know, I think being able to articulate what problem you solve and actually doing the prospecting ahead of time so that ideally when you speak to somebody, you already know what problem they're having and you're making, I think the, I think the other part also is making that, making the articulation, that problem as specific and as, um, as tangible as possible to the person that you're speaking to, right? So when you're speaking, for example, to a person at a pharma company, not just saying, you know, we sell a solution that does, that solves problem X, Y, Z, but specifically talking about a specific, what that problem looks like for, for that company, right? So, you know, your patent on drug XYZ is running out. Um, you're running out of assets in this therapeutic area. We can mine data and guess what? We have these data sets in that therapeutic area, blah, blah, blah. Um, making it, making, making the problem as real as possible and even just saying, look, you know, even being able to show that you've, you've done your homework and you understand their, their business, right? Now from the, the, the large company side, the mindset should be, I think, I don't think it's a bad thing at all just to speak to a bunch of companies, you know, to understand what's out there. But I think what you want to do is have a very clear set of goals on, you know, sort of informing yourself about the market and what's going on, and then informing yourself about what problems to solve. Try not to mix the two. Um, because I, it's, it's very difficult to great. do. It, it's very, and, you know, different people have different styles. That's just one thing that I've found, you know, going into every single meeting, I like to think through, am I meeting with this company to learn more about the space? How can I provide, hopefully, what's a meaningful interaction to, to that company? Or do I see a tangible potential opportunity to, to dive in? And I would, you know, I think just to go one, you know, one, one step further, you know, settings like the Startup Health Festival or JP Morgan, like these large, massive conferences, my personal preference is not to necessarily use that for an initial meeting, right? So ideally, identifying beforehand, having that initial conversation over the phone, learning a little bit more about each other. And then that way, when you meet in person, you're able to use that time more effectively and really dive in deep in terms of what the solution actually looks like, what can actually solve. So I personally don't favor the sort of speed dating format that sometimes, people, you know, the five, 10 minutes here in meetings here and there as, as an initial meeting. Oh, my God. Every um, Everybody is thinking back with JP Morgan and that speed dating. It may be. I mean, I, I know certain people that it works well for, but yeah. from my perspective, you know, I rather than taking on a hundred meetings in three days, I much rather prefer to take on a hundred calls in the say month leading up to JP Morgan, figure out which seven, eight companies or five, five to six companies are the most interesting. And then being able to spend like an hour with each one, taking advantage of the fact that they're there in person. I don't have to fly to like seven different places. So I, I prefer point. I prefer quality over quantity, but you know, again, people I think it just comes down to what's you know, what's driving your activities and what works best for you. But that's I found so awesome. far every single partnership I've done has resulted from that week in some way, shape, or form. So Yep. Cool. Awesome. Well, last question. Last question and then we'll wrap up. Um so twenty twenty has been a year of uh advances and uh significant obstacles. In our industry, um, if you could kind of time travel back to January, JP Morgan, uh, before uh, COVID hit, um, to kind of launch a timely partnership, what, what would it be or with whom? Yeah, so, you know, I'm going to make a comment about the industry in general. I actually really wish the industry took human behavior a little bit more or 
targeted intervention for human behavior a little bit more seriously because you know we're think of all the challenges that we've run into with COVID. a lot of it stems from human behavior and the fact that there's all these behavioral consequences to to this lockdown that you know we'll probably only see the real results of absolutely in, in, over years right and so if we had actually paid attention to have these scalable solutions which have always been there by the way those solutions didn't magically just you know materialize in march so you know i think if we had taken behavioral intervention and i don't i don't just mean mental health and psychiatric disorders i mean you know actually looking at human behavior as a legitimate treatment modality i think if we had taken that a little bit more seriously as a space in march we'd have had the solutions ready to deploy when this thing hit um and i i honestly think that going after that would have actually actually addressed a lot of the i guess non non a lot of the non-pharmacological challenges we're, we're running into right now and i i believe that there is a lot of value to be had there so you know people are wising up to it better late than never we're starting to see a lot of that work being done now but i i just really you know mental health is something that in general is an area that is unfortunately very underserved and so i, I kind of wish that people had taken more focus and looking at that as a real commercial opportunity um, so that we would have had a lot of those systems, not just having the solutions in place, but have sort of consumer acceptance of those solutions in place by, you know, by now. And consumer and provider. I remember, uh, I, remember provider. Uh, I remember one uh, quote that really stuck with me. Um, the, I think it was uh, either from a health system. I think from a health system. It said, we achieved in the past two months what we haven't been able to achieve in the past 20 years. 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, so one thing so I, I do. Think that's, um, yeah, I mean, one thing I do hope is, you know, obviously, given the situation, there's a lot of um, you know, every it's like, um, you know, a lot of this sort of getting the nose to the grindstone. I mean, I remember seeing, you know, we, ha we haven't, you know, for all the other societal challenges we're seeing. I mean, I think looking at the progress the healthcare system is making just because it's forced to do so is is quite heartening. I, you know, I hope that it's not a flash in the pan because there are some genuinely positive improvements in practice that will that we've unfortunately been forced to do um but you know who knows who knows what the future will hold but i really i really exactly. hope this i really hope this focus on making um making mental health resources available and accessible without ha you know at, at the point of care is something that we really continue doing and it's something that gains more acceptance as something that's real and it works as opposed to just a gadget yeah, and I think we're going to be talking much more uh, on this podcast and other places about how the uh, meeting patients where they are uh, paradigm yep. is evolving, how uh, what beyond the pill means now, and yep. uh, you know, in the new the new kind of age of of people really being in some being somewhere, not physically. Physically, they're yeah. somewhere. Uh, I mean, and you got to really meet them. Right. I mean, far too often we. I think far too often, right? We've uh, you know we as as an industry have looked at patients as a as a set of organ systems right um so you you know you have pharma pharmacological therapy exactly. that the disease tissue or what have you um, but you really have to think through the fact that human behavior in in most therapeutic areas is a massive driver of of outcomes and there have been a number of studies that have shown this right and so i think as an industry the more seriously we take the behavioral side of of treatment um the better it'll be honestly all right, that's a great takeaway for us. Take uh, the behavioral side of treatment more seriously. It's a call to action to everyone, to all of us. Uh, Amea, I want to say big, big thank you for being for uh, 
for joining us on uh, our inaugural podcast of this series at the uh, at the Help Around Specialty Patient uh, podcast series. And uh, we are excited to uh, start this uh, series and and have many more interesting guests reach out to us. We are podcast at helparound.co. And I'm enjoying my new role as a podcast host. I, I always knew that uh, healthcare startup CEO never really worked out for me. So I have my new career now. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for being with us today. And Amea, thanks again. And uh, good luck to all of us in handling this uh, this period of challenge and growth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Specialty Patient Podcast. Follow us for even more episodes on any of your preferred podcast streaming services, including Apple and Spotify. If you have a suggestion for a topic or a guest, please send an email to lindsay at helparound.co. And for more information on Helparound, visit helparound.co.